Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's your host, Brandon Laws. On this podcast, we've talked to so many people, speakers, authors, business leaders, you name it. We've talked both at a high level about theories and philosophies about how to make workplace culture better. And we haven't had a ton of conversations with people who are actually doing the work of running their organizations and putting these things to practice. So we are sort of launching a kind of a bonus podcast series, if you will, within Transform Your Workplace. And we'll release them on Fridays as a bonus episode. And my colleague, Alan O'Darce, will be interviewing CEOs and business leaders around their workplaces and what they've done to build their their organizations and their business and, and all that. It's a really nice pairing with all the things that we talk about on a theory or philosophy basis with people who are putting it into practice. So I hope you really enjoy this, this series. I'm going to turn it over to Alno Darce. He's interviewing Alicia Chapman on this particular episode. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. And if you want more of this, we've got tons of episodes coming. Enjoy. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I'm Alan Ladarce, your guest host. I had a great and inspirational conversation today with Alicia Chapman. She's the CEO of Willamette Technical Fabricators. Some of the nuggets captured from our conversation, this company was actually started during the pandemic. And in less than three years, they've grown to over $10 million in revenue. That's an incredible story with or without a pandemic, if you will. Also being in manufacturing, one of the things that's very unique about them is they have unlimited sick days, which is unheard of. And they've been incredibly successful. She happens to be a woman-owned and minority-owned business. So not only does that play into the culture of the company, but other factors in the company also and in the industry. One thing they're really proud of is during the pandemic, they never had anybody, their employees voluntarily resign during that time, which says, again, just how great the culture is there. And they, as you can imagine, are competing with these 800-pound gorillas for these huge multi-million dollar contracts. It's like a David and Goliath type battle, and they've been very, very successful, which is very inspiring. And also, Alicia is very passionate about helping women get into the trades. It's very rare in manufacturing to see that, and she's doing all that she can to help. So I feel you'll enjoy this conversation that we had. Feel free to reach out. Let us know what you think, and we love connecting with our listeners. So have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. How are you doing, Alicia? I'm well. Thanks, Al. Great, great. Thanks for being here. So Alicia, on your website, it's it's kind of mind-numbing when you see some of the cool projects that you guys do. So I want to let you... Tell us a little bit about what you guys do there. Yeah. So I'm a company, Willamette Technical Fabricators. In a nutshell, we build big steel things, primarily for transportation and clean energy infrastructure. So I'm talking about bridges, locks and dams, specifically for hydropower dams. And then when we're talking about clean energy beyond hydropower, we're also talking about wind energy, specifically floating offshore wind and energy devices in the ocean. And then also pump storage hydropower, which in a really high level overview is kind of like a a gravity battery for other kinds of energy. Got it. And tell me a little bit about the makeup of the company. How many employees do you guys have right now? So right now we are 42 employees. We're, We're pretty new, actually. We're technically a pandemic startup. So we started out with two people and now we're 42. Wow, that's fantastic. And tell me a little bit about how that started because I read that 
part of the connection that you had was when you're working on your PhD, I think, at, at PSU is wh where the seeds first initially got planted. And then I think you were doing some work with uh, OMIC, I believe, correct? Yes, that is correct. So my background's a little circuitous. I'm not originally from a manufacturing background. I was working for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, doing economic development projects for the U.S. government overseas in post-conflict areas. So Afghanistan, for that Libya, Palestine. And the theory of change with those projects is that if you give people a good job and a chance to rebuild whatever was destroyed, then they won't get into trouble and they'll be contributing members of their society. And there was something going on in Sheffield, England, called the Advanced Manufacturing Research Center, the AMRC, which was an R&D facility that Boeing, the big airplane company, had started up. And they were kind of following the same model where Sheffield used to be a big hub for cutlery, like they made silverware. And then all of that got outsourced to China. And the town was just really run down. You know, there's a lot of problems like you'd see in any town in the U.S. when the mill shuts down. And they put in this R&D facility and then some of the big suppliers like Rolls-Royce moved in. They built factories, giving young people great jobs. They're also just giving them hope. And it was this really like amazing economic development success story. So after I got pretty burnt out working in war zones, I moved to Portland about 10 years ago and I was working and getting my PhD at Portland State University, working for their Institute for Sustainable Solutions. And I was working very closely with someone from Boeing who told me about this center and was trying to get something very similar, or at least modeled after that, started up here in Oregon called the Oregon Manufacturing Innovation Center. And I just love the idea that we would be creating this, you know, proven model here in my own backyard and I wouldn't have to travel and I would be able to help create good jobs. And also some of the projects that I was most attracted to were projects focusing on clean energy and really addressing this increasingly urgent need to get off of fossil fuels and recognize some of the devastating effects of climate change and these great opportunities to bring manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. But then, you know, COVID happened. And with the pandemic, a lot of the research shut down. Boeing went through a lot of changes. And some of the partners that I had been working with, other big manufacturing companies at Omic, also were going through big transitions. So I got together with some of the engineers that I had worked with at Omic, and we had the idea to start up a new company, Willamette Technical Fabricators, which uh, we officially launched in 2020. Wow, that 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 is fascinating. I did not know that that you guys started when the pandemic took place. I mean, talk about the mother of invention, and and it's even yeah. more crazy because you guys have only been in business for a few years, right? Yeah, coming up on two years this December. Yeah, so so to think that going from two years with two employees to now, you know, to 40 plus employees and doing these damn bulkheads and these roller gates and that yeah. that's just incredible what you guys have been able to build in such a short time. Yeah, thank you. It's, wow. it's been pretty crazy. <laughs> wow, that's, that, that is so interesting. And I didn't realize that, that you were at the beginning of Omic when it started here. And, and sounds yeah. like Boeing was the kind of the driver to create that. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of 10 or so centers that they built around the, the world, but the first one in the U.S. Wow, that, that is fascinating. And in Little Scappoose, Oregon, right? Right, yeah. Of all places, that is fantastic. Well, one of the reasons I really wanted to chat with you, there are several because I think your business is fascinating, but I think being that I've spent my life in manufacturing too, it's so unique to find someone, especially a CEO, that is a woman, if you will. You know, so tell me a little bit about that. And have you dealt with any challenges? And have you turned those into opportunities? Because I know you're a minority and woman-owned business too. Yeah. I mean, I think you're not wrong. There's, there's not a lot of women, especially in leadership roles, not just in manufacturing, but across industries. And that's definitely something that is changing for the better. But 
you know, there are still challenges associated with that. There's direct challenges where it's hard for me to get access to capital. It's hard for me to maybe do some of the business development work that is very traditionally held by a lot of the same players. So just being a new company is is challenging enough. Being a woman-owned company, I'm sure, contributes to that in, in explicit and non-explicit ways. But it is also an opportunity. I'm sure, as you know, being very familiar with the manufacturing world, there's a dearth of skilled workers. And, and that's not getting any better as a lot of our most skilled tradespeople are aging out. I mean, I think the average age in our shop is in, you know, 50s. And that's great. We have, you know, really artists and tradespeople, but they're going to be retiring in the next 10 years. So the onus is definitely on me and on my colleagues to train the next generation. And I think seeing a woman in a, a leadership role and a woman of color is really inspiring to young girls and women that are considering a career in the trades and thinking about what their next move is going to be if they're transitioning careers. I work really closely with some community-based organizations that work specifically with women. There's a group called Oregon Tradeswomen that's phenomenal. And we've got a couple of our apprentices now, or actually a couple of our recent graduates as well, that came from Oregon Tradeswomen that they told me were really attracted to work for my company because it's, it's so rare for them to see a woman in a leadership role in manufacturing in particular. And what do you think the key is? Because we've seen this not just with, it's not gender specific, you know, the kids don't seem to want to get their hands dirty. And, you know, there's so sure. much great opportunity in manufacturing. And, and my son's one of those, you know, he, he loves to get his hands dirty. He's never going to be a guy that works in a cube. So what do you think needs to happen to help increase that exposure and awareness for kids? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated, but I think there are some really clear things that we need to be doing. And the first is, and I like, can't stress this enough, we need to bring back shop class. We need, a kid, we need to get kids off of their screens and working with their hands and just expose them to making things and building things. Because without shop class, without home ec, without a lot of these like, really hands-on STEM-focused and career technology education programs, a lot of kids just don't even know that these careers are out there. Or there's this really bad stigma, especially manufacturing, that it's dull or dangerous or dirty jobs. And I'll be really honest with you. I, I'm a military brat. My mom was in the Navy. My dad was in the Navy. I grew up all over. And I graduated high school in Newport News, Virginia, which is a big shipbuilding capital. And when I graduated high school right around 9-11, you really had two options if you didn't get a scholarship and go off to college, which I was able to do. You either went into the shipyard as an apprentice or you went to war. And at the time, you know, you're going to Iraq or Afghanistan. And a lot of the people in my graduating class, they said, I'll take my chances and I'll go to war because there was a justifiable apprehension about going to work in the shipyard because it was not necessarily a long-term career that you would want for your kids. And I think a lot of that has changed. And especially, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, it's very different than where I was in the South, in Portland in particular, and definitely at my company. We're really proud of the jobs that we're offering, the careers that we're offering to people. And it's not just in the shop, you know, our engineers, our project managers. I mean, you've got a really amazing array of opportunities. And a lot of people don't even realize that you can be a computer programmer and work in a manufacturing environment. You can be a robotic operator and work in a manufacturing environment. You can have a PhD and be a very research-oriented scientist in a manufacturing environment. So I think getting kids exposed to manufacturing through activities like Manufacturing Day or through the kinds of tours and field trips that we offer to local schools and local apprenticeship programs, that's huge. And not just winning the kids over, but winning over their parents. Because I think there's also this misperception that if I want what's best for my children, which of course we all do, you know, I want them to get into a good college and get a four-year degree. 
And I think what we're realizing now, and you know, no offense to the people that are switching careers, but a lot of people have completely shifted gears during the pandemic because they need to have more flexibility or because they just are kind of fed up. And people talk about you know, the great resignation, but I, I really love to call it the great renegotiation. And I think there are a lot of people that really want to feel proud of what they do and they weren't getting that before. And because they've been forced to make a radical shift, they're thinking maybe something else could be a better fit for me. Something else could be my passion. And if you've never actually had an opportunity to make something or, you know, the things that we build are massive. So to drive past the McNary Dam or the Abernathy Bridge in, in Oregon City and say, like, I helped build that. That's really rewarding. And I, I want to be able to offer that opportunity to more people. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating that you say that because I remember when I first started working in manufacturing and I've not been in manufacturing before that. But when you walk mm -hmm. into a shop floor and you see all these metal chips and this noise and these hard hats, it's, it's just so different and exciting. And yeah. back to your point, though, with the programs at the schools, you know, mm -hmm. do you feel that part of the issue, because it, it just really hit me between the eyes when you talked about the parents, because I remember talking to a counselor at one of the Lake Oswego high schools and their parents sure. chewed out the, the counselor because the kid was so passionate about wanting to be an automotive tech. And, and they said, there's no way in heck that our kid is oh. going to do that. And it's sad because, you know, that was their passion, if you will. But do you feel also part of the challenge is the, the teachers themselves? You know, do they know people in manufacturing and in the trades? Because they're the ones that are working with the kids there. Do you think that's part of the problem too? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, across our society, there is just, there is a lack of awareness and a lack of pride in manufacturing. And we really need to change that and not, you know, criticize the fact that people don't know any better because there are lots of reasons that I think those perceptions exist. And for them to be able to see how much things have changed or how many really cool, you know, advanced manufacturing, factory 2.0, 4.0, whatever you want to call it. There's really cool opportunities to engage parents, young people, teachers by getting them out and getting them into our facilities. And, and that's what I'd like to see more of, especially now that, you know, Knockwood, things are starting to open back up again post-pandemic and we can actually do that kind of in-person engagement. It's really important. Yeah, yeah. And I know that you're a member of OBI and so are we. And, and I mm -hmm. saw the stats in one of the webinars I had recently, how you can be an undergrad or a grad student. And typically they make about 30% more in manufacturing. So I think there's that lack of awareness also. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these are careers. And I, I think in our shop, the average person does not have a four-year degree, um, but our, our average salary is over $85,000 a year. And that's just base. So if you're also working overtime, you know, you get more than that. And that's great benefits on top of the salary or on top of the wages. And a lot of a lot of college grads that I know, especially in liberal arts degrees like I had, you know, <laughs> originally, they're they're not coming close to that. And it's going to take them quite a long time to be able to pay off their loans and and whether or not they love what they're doing, which a lot of them unfortunately don't, but they just didn't know that there are other options. I mean, that's a big burden to place on kids these days. So to be able to do what a lot of the, the young people in my shop are doing, instead of having to get a good college degree so you can get a good job, get a good job and then go back to school. And we're actually paying to put some of our apprentices back through school if they want to go on and further their education and they want to get an advanced degree or you know even just a four-year engineering degree so they can do more project management or quality control, that sort of thing, inspection. I mean, there's so many career paths but having that foundation of having worked in the shop and really understanding in the real world production environment how things work, that's invaluable. You're not going to get that in college. Wish that the most folks, you know, with that path, because when we go to college, I remember I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 
out of school. Yeah. And, t- and you don't even know who you are typically when you're 24 and 25. So getting some work experience right. makes a lot of sense. Especially considering that the jobs of 10 years from now don't exist right now. You know, they, we haven't even invented them yet. So we've yeah. got to prepare kids for what's coming down the pipeline. So going back to business, because this fascinates me that you're such a young company and you're able to get these big contracts with these big associations and groups and cities. Mm-hmm. Now, do you guys operate as a prime contractor or are you a sub or how do you go about you know sourcing these contracts? Yeah, so both. I mean, I, I think it's about 50-50 right now. Half of our work is as a prime directly for primarily the U.S. government. So we, we work a lot with the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, Department of Transportation and the Department of Energy. And then we also do work as a subcontractor. We work with some big general contractors. Like I mentioned, the Abernathy Bridge in Oregon City we're working on with Kiwit, who's one of the biggest general contractors. We do partner with some other small businesses. So we definitely try to work with other local, if possible, small businesses. But we also have a joint venture with another small business that's in Florida, in Tampa. So just trying to leverage our strengths and, and work to not just, you know, create more opportunity for ourselves and our region, but for American manufacturing in general. Most business owners I talk to have talked about a struggle to recruit folks. Are, are you guys having the same challenges too? Well, I, I feel for them because I know that it's it's a tough labor market right now if you're hiring. We have been very fortunate because we are a very mission-driven organization. We're very focused on our values and really treating our people as our greatest asset because they are. So not only have we not had a challenge recruiting people, we've had zero voluntary attrition in the last year and a half since we've been in operation, which I'm so proud of. Wow, that's amazing. Our, our people are sticking around. They're happy with what we're doing. And you know that's really the best, the best metric that we know we're doing a good job. But, I mean, as I mentioned before, We've got a very experienced, and I'm you know, doing finger quotes here, <laughs> workforce, and, and we're already working very closely with organizations like Oregon Tradeswomen to try to bring in more young people and to train them on the job. So pairing them with a mentor, giving them that one-on-one training that they really need to be able to succeed and to pass on that institutional knowledge before we lose out on a whole generation. Because like I said, we've got, got about, I'd say... of our workforce is going to retire in the next 10 years. And that is, yeah, it's, it's probably not an anomaly, especially in manufacturing. Yeah. That'll keep you up at night, won't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's fascinating to me though, because given how hard it is to recruit and even harder in manufacturing and the trades and, Mm -hmm. you know, I I know you guys are a benefit corp. uh, So do you feel that the DNA of the company, is that a big part of what brings people there and what's kept everyone there? Absolutely. I mean, I I put it on my website. We try to be really transparent. One of the ways that we're able to attract good people is by looking outside of the traditional pools and specifically targeting underserved communities, targeting women, targeting people of color. And then by giving them a really fair shot, you know, saying this is exactly how much we've budgeted for this position instead of trying to negotiate a salary based on what you've gotten paid in the past. Which unfortunately often means that if you have been unfairly paid, then that's just going to get perpetuated. So we're very transparent about our salary scale, about our wage scale, and about what exactly you need to do to progress in the shop. It's exclusively based on your skills. So we will train you. We will give you the opportunity to take on new responsibilities and new new technologies. And then it's up to you how quickly you want to progress and then practice those and advance. But I think also having some flexibility and just meeting people where they're at, especially coming out of COVID and realizing some people need flexible schedules. They need to be able to take care of their kids. They need to be able to take classes. They need to be able to adjust their commutes because gas is $6 a gallon. So we've actually transitioned to a four-day work week. We give people in the 
the office, the flexibility to work from home whenever they need to, and unlimited paid time off, which I know some people are shocked to hear. It's not that big of a deal in the tech world, but in manufacturing, it has not affected our productivity targets at all. We just trust people to get their work done around their lives, and they have exceeded my expectations about making sure that that doesn't hurt the company, and it also doesn't hurt their ability to have a really healthy work-life balance. Wow. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned tech because I, as you were saying this, I was going to say, you sound like a CEO of a tech company and here you are in a manufacturing industry. And I'm really hoping that, that a lot of folks in the manufacturing world listen to this podcast because I think you're doing some amazing, refreshing stuff. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I know we're, we're pretty new, but we are growing really rapidly. And I'll be very honest about our, our finances. We did $1.4 million in revenue in our first year, which is really only about six months. We almost doubled that in the first two quarters of this year, and we're on track to do $10 million by the end of this year. So we're growing and we're profitable and we're doing a great job of retaining our people. So it doesn't have to be you know, totally profit-centric at the expense of people and planet. I, I'm very committed to this uh, you know, sustainability approach that I got from PSU and this triple bottom line or even you know, quadruple bottom line, the four Ps because we had purpose to it. But I think that's a really long-term strategy for a good business. And even in the relative short term that we've been operating, it's paying off. Wow. And that's fascinating going from 1.4 to 10 million in a stretch of a couple of years. But that also puts some strain from a you know development of employees and growth and, and scalability standpoint. So how are you guys managing that? So I actually just took a, a scaling course for Latino entrepreneurs from the Stanford Graduate School of Business because admittedly, like this is my first business and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to blow it. I don't want to make a lot of the same mistakes that other companies that have grown too fast have, have suffered from. And at the core, we're going to be really driven by our values. So we want to make things that make the world safer and more sustainable. We make bridges, we make clean energy infrastructure. And we're not really going to branch out from that right now. I think there's so much opportunity, especially with some of the big federal bills that have recently passed for infrastructure and clean energy. There's really a, a huge demand for manufacturers, especially domestic manufacturers, to be able to meet that. So we're staying really focused on our values and our, you know, our core markets. Um, we're also, we're, we're being really intentional in who we hire. And I, I really have to stress that, like, I put my values on the website, on our applications. I make it really clear this is going to be a good fit for you culturally or it's not. And that's fine. But we have a really strict no asshole. I hope I can say that on the podcast. Or you can. No <laughs> okay, yeah. No asshole rule. No, yeah. there's no bandwidth for brilliant jerks. I'm doing finger quotes here. But, you know, there's no amount of money that somebody could make me in the short term that's going to that's going to justify the negative impact that that has on morale in the long term. And we're, we're very strict about that. And thankfully, I think because we're, we're so upfront, it hasn't been an issue. And our team is really extraordinary, especially in some of the, the really tough challenges that we've all been dealing with as a, as a world, you know, but even here in Portland, especially over the last year and a half. And they have really just come together and been there for each other and made sure that this company is everything that they hoped it would be and that I hoped it would be. It's interesting that you mentioned culture because are you familiar with Collins and Porras, Built the Last or Good to Great, either one of those books? Absolutely, yeah. Professor yeah. Porras is one of my instructors at Stanford. So oh, <laughs> huge. are you kidding me? You had him as an instructor? 
Yeah, a little. Oh my um, god! Yeah, I, yes. I quote those guys at least once a week. You know, and they yeah. have those eight key attributes, and one of them is you eject folks like a virus if it's not part of a cult-like culture. You know, and 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 in a good way, not a bad way. But that fit is is so so critical. It, it just. I'll tell you what, you should be on 60 Minutes. <laughs> you need to be on a bigger <laughs> platform than my podcast because I think a lot of folks, not just manufacturers, need to listen to what you're doing. You're doing a lot of stuff really, really well. Well, I really appreciate that. It's, it's. I mean, I get so much encouragement from my team, but it's really validating to hear from from outsiders looking at us for the first time that this is something that resonates with them too, because that's really what I'm hoping is to be an example for other businesses, other manufacturers that... This is working really well for us, and I don't hate going to work every day, <laughs> you know, which I, I don't know if everyone was driven to a radical career shift from the pandemic like I was. But I think that th there are a lot of lessons that you could take from our company, even just in this year and a half, that would be applicable to any other business. I want to hit the rewind button because I'm curious, when you were younger, what did you aspire to do? What did you think you would do? Yeah. So I, I mentioned my mom and my dad were both in the Navy. My dad actually emigrated to the U.S. from the Dominican Republic, and he got a citizenship because he joined the military. My mom grew up in a small town in the Midwest, and that was her ticket out, and she'd never seen the ocean. So that's why Navy and not Army or another branch. But I moved around a lot, and I always thought that I would either go into foreign service or do something, you know, serving my country. I actually have really terrible eyes, so that's why I didn't end up going to the Naval Academy. But I wanted to do something in public service and something that involved, you know, changing the world. And I was very idealistic and I, I still am. But I, I had these these ideas as a young person that that was my path. And then after 9-11, when I was in high school, I definitely wanted to go abroad and try to make the world a safer place. And that's what led me to USAID. But then I also realized that, you know, there's this... Um, this misperception, especially in in kids these days who maybe have a little bit of overexposure to social media and the yeah. highlight reels of people's lives. Yes. I'm trying to be really compassionate to kids because I know they're struggling now, but you don't have to go out and, and literally save the world to make a difference. And I realize now as a small business owner, you know, really changing the lives of the couple dozen people that work for me and hopefully making our community more resilient and creating to a more equitable economy and building this infrastructure that's going to help us become more resilient when there's a big earthquake or when there's a climate disaster. I mean, this stuff is just as impactful, if not more so than the stuff that I was doing overseas and, and working abroad. And I, I think that there are lots of ways that every business has a domino effect on the community around it. And if we try to think about it that way and just really focus on the immediate impacts that we're having on our workers and our partners and our customers, that, that can be so powerful. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. Sometimes we try to just conquer the whole world and just taking it one yeah. bite at a time can, can make a big, big difference. So I'm curious, I had a question because I, I was looking at my notes here about when you were younger, as far as mentors and heroes, you know, and by the way, I didn't know you were Dominican. Habla Español también? Claro que sí. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Wow. You guys dominate and rule in baseball, by the way. I'm a big baseball fan. <laughs> so who, who are some of your mentors and heroes when you're younger and now? Oh, gosh, absolutely my mom. I mean, she's the strongest woman I know, and she really instilled a great work ethic in me and a sense of service and duty, which I I am so grateful to all of her sacrifices for me to be able to have the opportunities that I have. 
Um, I've had some amazing mentors in in college. I did go you know the academic route, and I was interested in being able to do monitoring and evaluation when I was working for USAID. So my old boss, Rebecca Brewington, is a good friend of mine now. But when I was working for USAID, she taught me the importance of measuring impact and being able to iterate on our projects instead of getting caught up in what we were trying to do, really trying to understand if we've accomplished our goals and being willing to admit when we haven't and and take a step back and redesign in order to be more effective and, and to be really humble about that in order to be effective. Um, I had a good friend at, and mentor at Boeing who actually got me involved in, in OMIC and started this whole mess, Matt Carter, who was really intentional and and taught me that the most important thing that a leader can do is say what you do and do what you say and you know, that that trust and transparency that is really integral for a leader, I think, is is one of the most important things that I have with the people that work for me now. Wow. And, and, and I'm sure that a lot of your leadership style, you know, mimics a lot of what you learned from Rebecca and Matt and your mother, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of comes full circle because, you know, it's like chicken or the egg thing, but you building this amazing culture and being so intentional, you know, in, in the quadruple bottom line, I think that's part of the reason you guys have been so successful. I'm sure of it. In fact, I don't think that if I was focused exclusively on making a profit and getting into the black as soon as possible, you know, as a startup, I know that's important. And if I was beholden to shareholders, just only worried about that, I wouldn't have been able to attract the amazing talent and and retain the people that work for me. And I say that that is our greatest asset, but it's 100% true. And the ability to be able to innovate and to problem solve and to be resilient, even when things are tough. And we've had so many challenges in the manufacturing world in the last year, and they just stay calm and power through, you know, it wouldn't be possible if I didn't really believe that that is the most important thing that we have going for us. Wow. And what would you say to that entrepreneur? Because I mean, it's like a David and Goliath thing. You're getting these big contracts and you're this little guy that doesn't even have that much experience in manufacturing and you're woman owned. I mean, we could just stack all the things against you, you know, that you have, but somehow you're thriving and so forth. So what would you say to those entrepreneurs that feel like, God, how do I take that first step? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing you need to do is really figure out what problem you're trying to solve. There's another great professor at Stanford that I love to quote, but he always used to ask us, do you want to sell shit or do you want to help people? And if you're in the business of helping people, then you're going to find a problem that you can solve and be successful. And if you're just worried about making a sale, you, you got to have a really great idea. <laughs> what concerns do you have, you know, for the economy getting softer and what's going on, do you think that'll impact your business and, and what changes need to take place? So my business is really interesting because we are a manufacturing small business. So we have a lot of the same concerns as other manufacturers and small businesses as far as taxes and, you know, the programs that are available to help us build the workforce, the funding that we need to be able to do on-the-job training, the tax incentives that we need to be able to build and expand and the lack of industrial land to be able to do that as well. The regulatory environment, I need a lot of permits because I build a lot of things made out of metal, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of concerns there that I think really resonate with small businesses and manufacturers across the board, but we're also very much in the clean energy infrastructure business. So, I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about floating offshore wind and pump storage hydropower and and quote unquote, green jobs, because I think that's important for the economy 
especially for a more equitable economy. And it's very important for the environment. And the the environment, I'll be honest, is what originally attracted me to Oregon. I wanted to be close to this beautiful, beautiful place that had, you know, beautiful oceans and the, the rainforest, temperate rainforest and waterfalls and a glaciated mountain in my backyard. And, you know, I think that's attracted a lot of people here for recreation and just beauty and the cultural values that we get from the ecosystem. And I'm, I'm very much aware that that's in danger. So I think prioritizing clean energy and making that not just lip service, but really something that we're going to make, make the pathways to meet our very ambitious zero carbon goals by 2030. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know how ambitious you realize these are, but I have I have a really great for that. So we just chipped out some big bulkhead gates for the Corps of Engineers for the McNary Dam. And you can see a picture of it on our website. They're huge. They're 70 tons. It's really cool. Sounds really big. But just one floating offshore wind turbine platform weighs between four and five thousand tons. So that's eight to 10 million pounds. And for reference, the Eiffel Tower weighs about 10,000 tons. So one platform is half an Eiffel Tower. And that's just for the platform. That's not for the turbine that's mounted to it. The turbine itself is even bigger, and it has to be to be able to generate massive amounts of energy, up to 15 megawatts. So to meet Oregon's goals of integrating three gigawatts of floating offshore wind power into our electric grid by 2030, we need to build 200 of these things. And we haven't even started yet. So if we get started soon, and we can actually start building them in 2025, we've only got five years to meet that goal, which means I need to build a rate of one Eiffel Tower every payroll. <laughs> one every so, payroll every two weeks? Every two weeks. I mean, it's it's daunting and it's not impossible. But if we don't take it seriously, we're not going to get there. Wow. <laughs> I wrote all yeah. that down and I'm going to have to internalize that because <laughs> it's just hard for me to fathom building huh. one Eiffel Tower every week. But But it's all for the good of the environment, which is Refreshing Absolutely. to hear from you because uh, some folks, uh, CEOs in manufacturing will say it, but they don't, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk, you know, so it's great that you're yeah. passionate about that. Yeah. And I feel for a lot of entrepreneurs that are thinking, I really can't prioritize this or that yet. I've got to wait till I get profitable. And I think that's just really short term thinking. And I, again, I want to be able to show that you know, it, it can actually be well in the short term, and it absolutely is going to be in the long term. Yeah. And back to Collins and Paras, one of their eight key attributes is the right. tyranny of the is and the or. You know, you can be both, right? Yeah. I promise I'm not getting any cutbacks, you know, for, <laughs> for plugging. No, I'm just blown away that you had him as a professor because I would have loved to be a, a fly in the wall in that class. That's for sure. Yeah. So, so one thing I didn't get to ask you because we have minority uh, owners out there and women entrepreneurs. Are a lot of your contracts minority-owned and women-owned contracts? Have you found that to be a, a great opportunity for your company? We have an intentional purchasing policy, so that is absolutely my desire. I'll be honest with you, it's tough. There aren't a lot of other women and minority-owned businesses that meet a lot of the needs that we have. We do a lot of contracts for the government, so we have to buy American for all of our materials, which is mostly metal, mostly steel. And there aren't a lot of women-owned mills, <laughs> you know, aren't a lot of minority-owned mills. Um, so wherever I can, and, and absolutely my biggest cost is materials. So wherever I can work with a woman or minority-owned small business, preferably, or you know, a local business, even better, I do. I, I'm trying to partner with other businesses to help strengthen the economy onshore instead of having to, you know, make this really difficult trade-off that I know a lot of businesses are making where they're purchasing their steel from from China, frankly. And, you know, if you think about the irony of purchasing Chinese steel, which is so cheap because it's all coal powered and it's made by laborers that don't have, you know, the, the best working conditions, I'll say, 
as diplomatically as possible oh, and then shipping it across the Pacific Ocean and then building something that's supposed to help us decarbonize. Like, that's just madness to me. <laughs> and my question was more about your contracts. You know, if you get awarded a lot of contracts being minority or woman owned. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we've we've gone through a very arduous process to get certified. And I'm grateful that it is so stringent because we don't want to have people taking advantage of these programs that aren't really the intended communities. So we've only been certified for a few months. And I definitely have seen some of the bigger contractors like Kiwit being very intentional in their purchasing and wanting to work more with disadvantaged businesses and certified businesses. But we are not yet certified by the, the federal certification board at the, the Small Business Administration. We're not actually eligible to apply for that certification until we've had two years of tax returns and we're still too new. So I, I'm very hopeful that that's going to open some doors for us. But everything that we've won, all of our federal contracts, which is you know about $6 million right now, that's been free and open competing with the boys. Wow, that, that is so impressive because I just assumed that you had this edge, you know, because you're so smart being woman-owned and minority-owned, but you haven't even had a chance to dip into that. But I cannot imagine yeah. the opportunities that'll come from that. I hope so. Yeah, because it gives me the opportunity to provide more jobs to women and people of color who aren't traditionally included in this wealth generation, you know, pyramid scheme. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I know you guys are near the St. John's Bridge. I mean, or do you guys have room to expand at the rate that you guys are going at? Yeah. So right now, our primary facility is it's directly underneath the St. John's Bridge in Portland. We also have a satellite facility on the Columbia River in Vancouver, Washington. And we're in talks with the Port of Portland to build a custom facility because, like I mentioned, these things that we want to build, the floating offshore wind turbine platforms, one of these fully assembled before we can actually put it in the water and send it upriver out through the, out through the Astoria Bar into the ocean, it's the size of a football field. So we do need a lot of space. and. We are very excited to be able to build a custom space that will give us that river access that we're absolutely going to need and room to grow. Because right now we are we are bursting at the seams with work, which is a great problem to have. But it does mean that we have to be a lot more creative in the way that we organize our workers and our projects. Yeah, from a logistics standpoint, that's just mind blowing because I live in the Oregon City Beaver Creek area. So I went down underneath the Abernathy Bridge just to see some of the stuff that's going on. And yeah. incredible. I mean, that's like a three-year project. And I was telling my son, just the logistics and planning, I'd love to see the Gantt chart and what it looks like, you know, for uh -huh. a three-year program. Yeah, but you wouldn't want to see the Gantt chart for the interstate bridge replacement. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> if that ever happens at all, right? I, I am very confident that it's going to happen. And I do want to give a shout out to our, our Oregon legislative team in Washington, Senators Wyden and Merkley. And our Congresswoman Bonamici, because they have been such dogged proponents for this long overdue infrastructure rehaul for our bridges and our, our critical energy infrastructure, which are the kinds of things that my team is building. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure you're saying that because you're just a good person. And I don't mean that facetiously. <laughs> I mean, you'll get the business from it, but you're just doing it. You're saying this because it's the right thing to do, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I really do. I appreciate that we have such a great team fighting for us in Oregon. We're very lucky to have politicians that really they come out to our facility. They want to see what we're doing. They want to talk to our workers. They really care about the impact of the policies that they're writing and how it affects our day to day operations and our ability to grow long term. And not every state can say that. And I know Oregon's got some issues that we've got to work through. And I really hope that our next governor is going to be a, a key partner in that. But I think that 
having lived all over the country and all over the world, it's pretty great here. And I have no intention of leaving anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. My wife grew up here, but we've lived here as a family just for 17 years. We moved from California, but I've always said it's a well-kept secret, but it's not such a secret anymore. But uh, we yeah. love it here, no doubt. So in partying, are there any final nuggets because we're appealing to entrepreneurs, but also those aspiring budding entrepreneurs and kids out there uh, before we wrap things up that you'd like to, to mention? Yeah, I mean, for the kids especially, I just want to I want to tell them to think outside the box. And if you haven't seen some of the really cool stuff going on um, in really cutting edge factories, then get on TikTok, get on YouTube, whatever. But there's so much out there, so much video. And on our website, we just posted a new video to kind of give you a sense of the scale of some of those really cool projects that that you could be working on. And if you don't know if that's something that you want to do, you know, I'd, I'd love to invite families to the next manufacturing day. You know, they're, they're happening all over and there are lots of hands-on demos and opportunities for them to try to figure out if this is something that's really going to make their kids happy. Because we know that these are good paying jobs, you know, they're high demand, high skill, high wage jobs. But the most important thing, and I, I think we realize this more and more with a lot of young people having a really tough time right now, is to find something that's going to be fulfilling. And, and I think that manufacturing's had a bad rap for a long time, and, and that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and loving what they do, you know, because 95 or 98% of the people you and I probably know or have a job and it's just a job, you know, it's they're not, they're not yeah. passionate about it. They're not helping build something great that they love and so forth. So those are very great, great words there. Well, Alicia, I really yeah. appreciate the time that you shared with us and we'll provide some links, you know, so that way folks can learn more about you guys and some of the different groups that we talked about. But I thank you for your great. time so much. Yeah, thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.